Good morning. Um, I want to give you a little, uh, we're going to have a few announcements as far as some people's uh, illness and being away and so forth. So we want to keep everybody in mind that needs that. Um, we'll mention those at the end of service. But I did want to tell you one thing now so I don't forget it later. Uh, just an FYI, next week we're going to be having a, a visiting speaker with us named Sean Jeffries. Uh, he's a friend of both Caleb's and mine. We've crossed paths and actually worked with him in different uh, settings, teaching in other places. And uh, I'm really happy he's going to be here. I think his family's here on vacation, so we're making him work on his vacation. But I think we'll all enjoy and be benefited by, uh, by him. Um, and to be frank, I'm, Sean and I, we're not best buds. We don't talk every weekend or anything like that. But I've really enjoyed every time I've interacted with him. I think you will, too. He's one of those people that whenever you meet, he, uh, he has a neighbor spirit. You know, first time you meet him, bam, you're friends already. And uh, that's a really admirable thing. And, uh, of course, what he's going to be giving to us is, is teaching from the Word of God. So we'll look forward to that next Sunday um, whenever Sean and his family are here with us, Lord willing. Would you imagine, though, uh, another thing happens next Sunday. The person who's leading singing gets up and says, hey, we're going to sing a new song today, which we do that from time to time. How do you guys feel when we sing new songs, by the way? Does everybody love that? Some people are not crazy. I know some people are like, oh, no, not the new ones, seriously. And they get up and say, but hey, this is, a, this is a good new song because uh, the words come straight from Scripture. You say, okay, well, it can't be that bad, you know. And here's the words. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, all the young maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. You guys cool with us singing that song next Sunday? Does that sound good? Everybody comfortable? I'm not sure uh, what, you know, what kind of tune. No? Out. Everybody's out on this song, right? Uh, <laughs> The Book of Song of Solomon is one of the most probably underread, um, at least by me. Maybe y'all love just every, every week. You're like, I gotta get in my Song of Solomon reading. But I mean, it's not one that we go to a lot. Certainly not one we teach on a lot. Uh, but that's a shame. I'll go ahead and tell you. I think it's a shame. And, and there's good reasons for that. It's, it's not the easiest of books of the Bible to understand. It's love poetry, romantic poetry, written in another culture and another time and another place. Uh, and so romantic poetry by itself is, I mean, poetry by itself for some of us is kind of difficult. And then romantic poetry, even more awkward, if not difficult to interpret. And then romantic poetry written in another culture and another generation is even, in another language, by the way, is being translated. It's even, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a challenging book. All right. Um, and then, of course, it can be just, it's kind of weird. There's parts of it that are weird. I remember the first time I ever taught Song of Solomon, I was in college and I was teaching the high school class. And uh, the, the study was just going straight through the Bible. It was the wisdom literature, which Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, as you see in verse 1, is wisdom literature. In other words, it's not just a thing God's like, eh, let's just throw in some romantic stuff in there. It's wisdom. It's guidance for how to think about this, a very important aspect of human life. Anyway, I remember we were going to do Song of Solomon, and we were, going to do every, we were doing an overview. We were going to do every single paragraph. And uh, I was just describing kind of what the book was about. One of the kids, he was 13 or 14, a poor guy. He had never read it before, clearly. And he was just like flipping around in his Bible, like looking at it. And I saw him like hit the page, the page in Song of Solomon. And he just turned red and he started giggling a little bit. I was like, you, find, you found it, huh? He was like, yeah, this is weird. I don't know if I want to do this Bible class. So, okay, it, that, this is a, a book we don't look at a lot. But it's one that we should. Because it is a book about romantic love. Which, how important is that to human beings? We talked last, last week about Jesus' teaching on marriage and on divorce. Um, how, when you go into a bookstore, how many books are there on relationships? People trying to provide wisdom, guidance for relationships. Uh, think about the number of podcasts out there. Actually, you might, wanna, might not want to look them up because some of them probably aren't things we need to be listening to as Christians. Some of the, the wisdom, so-called, is really just wisdom for sinning, not, not for having constructive, healthy, good relationships. There's all kinds of talk about this. Think about how many conversations you have with your friends. Think about your own heartbreak and heartache and challenges that come with this. And then we wonder why when we're not paying attention to God's wisdom on this. Now, Song of Songs is not the only passage in Scripture that addresses love and romance and romantic relationships. Um, but, uh, but it's one of a number of uh, parts of Scripture that have this. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to go through this book. Uh, today we'll do part of it, and then Lord willing, we'll do uh, the latter part of the book, or a second part of the book, um, in a few weeks. Um, I'll ask Roger, he's going to pass out some handouts here, just to make it a little bit easier to follow along. If you're a note taker or whatever, this has got sort of the outline of the main points we're going to highlight. I want to go ahead and tell you something about the book. 
Uh, here's the approach we're going to take with it. Um, we're going to do chapters 1 through 3 because chapters 1 through 3, I believe, is telling the story of two young lovers who are not yet married, and, but they're in pursuit of marriage. And so ostensibly what this is is a lesson for those who are unmarried who may be pursuing marriage or for anybody who has any friends who are unmarried but may be pursuing marriage at some point. What's some wisdom uh, for those who are in pursuit of marriage that God gives to us? Uh, so even if you're like, well, I'm not in that category anymore, fine. You can pass this on to somebody else. If you are in this category, these are, the thing, these are some of the things that God has to say that help us to think about uh, living in pursuit of marriage and, and moving toward that. The second part of the book, by the way, I think describes their actual marriage. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk about that at another time to talk about wisdom for how to have a flourishing, um, joyous marriage. I do want to say something, the first line about how important this book is. Do you notice the very first line? of the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Uh, that, that phrase, Song of Songs, or that kind of construction, Jesus is King of Kings, or there was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. To say it that way in uh, the language that we've got, the Bible that came from, uh, is to say this is the best. Of all the things Solomon wrote, or all the things that were written in the, in the tradition of Solomon, depending on how you read that, this is the best. This is the, the most significant wisdom that you could get, which is saying something. Because Solomon wrote some pretty wise stuff, some pretty important stuff, but this one's a pretty big deal too. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we've got basically three acts in chapters 1 through 3. The first one's going to be chapter 1, start, we'll start in verse 5, going through chapter 2 and verse 7. The second act is chapter 2, verse 8, going through chapter 3, verse 5. And then the third act, which we'll spend the least time on, is chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 11. And uh, we'll kind of just go through each act and then pause and reflect on some lessons that this teaches us for thinking about romantic love, particularly thinking about being in pursuit of marriage. Uh, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. By the way, if you want, since it's poetry, you're going to get different things in different versions. Don't stumble over that too hard. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. I think that's a preferable uh, translation for this stuff, but you can read from whatever you want. I'm just letting you know in case there's some things that are a little different. That'll be why. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself? beside the flocks of your companions. In this opening scene, by the way, the, the initial verses in some ways are just a summary of the celebration of love, of what this is. That's what we read at the top of uh, our, our time together. But starting here, we actually get this, uh, this the, the curtain pulls back on this woman. And uh, you'll see in a second, she, there, she's not actually in the presence of her beloved, but she's sort of speaking, if this were a musical, I don't know if I don't do musicals, but maybe you do, but I know vaguely how they work. If this is a musical, the opening number would have her singing this out there, and notice the scene where she is. She's out in the vineyards, in the fields. And you see that she uh, has a mixture of confidence, I am lovely, but she says, I'm dark and been darkened by the sun, which in her culture, like in many cultures, apparently would be something where she would be regarded as less desirable because the sun has darkened her skin more than others. Colorism is not a, a new phenomenon in our culture, but this social, wrongful social expectation that you need to look a certain way, and that signifies something about your worth or value. She says, that's what I'm experiencing because I've been put out to work as a part of my family, but my own vineyard, in other words, her own um, desirability, I think is the way she's using this imagery, I haven't really tended to that. I'm not as desirable as maybe other women. But, but you love me and I love you and I don't want to be far away from you. I don't want to be like someone who's veiled. Where are you? She's looking for him. Where did you go? I want to be near to you. And I don't want to be like someone who has a veil where there's a separation between us. I want to be near to you. Listen to him as he responds. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. He tells her right where he is. Here's the track. You just follow the track. Come on. Come on over here. I don't want to be far away from you either. And he says to her, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. 
by the way, this is where the cultural stuff doesn't totally translate, because I don't know that you want to be like, babe, you look like a horse. It's awesome. You're mine, okay? I know that doesn't work. But she expresses some, some measure of insecurity, and he says, no way, no way. You're the best to me. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you, and here there's this group of people. By the way, we got, uh, I should have said this at the top. We've got her. She's the main character, by the way. Everything's seen through her eyes. It's really about her. And then her beloved. And then we've got this group of friends who she refers to as the daughters of Jerusalem, these other influences. And listen, they say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. In other words, yeah, yeah, he's right, girl. You're not all that stuff you said about yourself. is not true. We're going to actually elevate you even more. Verse 12, and she says in response, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She uses all this um, floral imagery to talk about, and it's not just floral in terms of it's growing out there, but these are things that would be sources of soothing, comfort. Some of y'all do this. You have oils or candles or whatever that bring these fragrances that are soothing, relaxing. Some have suggested that perhaps this is some sort of reference to like an aphrodisiac. I don't think that's necessarily uh, the case here. It could be, but it's not necessarily what's going on. What she's saying is, your love for me is something that's soothing, that's calming, that allows me to lie down and sleep. He responds, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, she responds. Truly delightful. Our couch is green or verdant. It's, it's lively. It's alive. The beams of our house are cedar. They're strong. Our rafters are pine. But then look at what she's right back to where she started a little bit. She says, I, chapter 2, verse 1, am a rose of Sharon. A lily of the valleys. Now, uh, some of y'all may have heard actually some Jesus songs based on these. Anybody heard this song? Mm -hmm. The lily of the valley or Jesus rose of Sharon drawn straight from this verse. Now, the point of those songs is, boy, this is the most special, prized, amazing flower that you could possibly have. Jesus is the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. That's not the point of the imagery. She's actually saying it's the opposite. I'm just a rose of Sharon. This is a very common flower. I'm a lily of the valleys. I'm like every other girl and maybe one that you would just walk right past and not even notice. So we may really think, oh, how sweet. But that was not in the, in the cultural context. That's not what was going on. This is actually a statement of, again, her insecurity. I'm nothing. I'm, I don't know why you think I'm beautiful. I don't know why you think I'm I don't know why you've done all this stuff. But he says to her, as a lily among brambles, or yours might say, as a rose among thorns, so is my love among the young women. She says, I'm nothing. I'm not that special. He says, you kidding me? You're the only one. Everything else is like an act of violence against me compared to you. And then she says about him, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. All right, let's pause right here and step back. I mean, this, um, we've seen these people who are, who are in love, and I'm going to use that phrase. I don't mean it in the silly, empty way that sometimes it's used in the world, but I mean, really, they're living in love with each other, right? And you hear this in the way they express it to each other. But you can also hear the tension here, not necessarily between them, but there is tension here. And I think this brings us to the first piece of wisdom that, uh, that the scriptures, uh, these scriptures help us with. And that is that the pursuit of romantic love will absolutely expose your insecurities. Do you see that here? Right off the bat. So the opening scene, oh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better. Notice I'm looking up, not at any of y'all, because it's just too weird to say anything like this. <laughs> it's weird. If I look at all you guys, weird. If I look at one person, it's weird then for everybody else. So it's just, this doesn't work. It's, it's awkward, okay? So if you feel weird, be over here. So anyways, she says all this stuff. She loves him so much. But man, that exposes some insecurities. Am I good enough for him? I mean, he's this whole thing. By the way, it's not just women that experience the insecurities. We could flip. If this was a story for men, uh, you might hear the same kinds of things for him. Am I going to be able to be all that she needs to be? Whatever. Pursuing romantic love exposes your insecurities. Those of you who are on the scene in that, do you find that to be true? 
that as you're out there, it actually makes you more insecure. Do I look, do I look this way? Am I supposed to look that way? Do I talk this way? Do I laugh that much? Am I laughing too much? Am I laughing in a weird way? Uh, was that supposed, you know, all these kinds of things that just expose insecurities. And that's not necessarily something that's something, you know, first date kind of stuff that happens. But actually, honestly, the deeper you get into a relationship, the more and more serious, though, is insecurities are exposed. And you see that very much with her. Even after he gives her these affirmations and these wonderful, beautiful um, statements, she comes right back to, I'm a Rose of Sharon. I'm just a lily of the valley. Like, I'm not really worth it to you. I'm not anything. Pursuing romantic relationships will absolutely expose your fears and insecurities. And not only fears and insecurities about yourself. We see those things, right, about her appearance, which was either something she believed that, hey, because I'm darker, therefore I'm not as attractive as other women. Or, and I'll say, the reason if she really believed that, it was because of the social pressures and expectations placed upon her that aren't anything true or real, but it's these uh, unfair uh, and wrongful kinds of ways of thinking about people because of their appearance in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But it's not just these personal insecurities she has. There's also relational insecurity. You saw that in chapter 1 and verse 7. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where, where are you? Where do you pasture your flocks? Where, where, what's going on? I don't want to be like one who is veiled beside you. I don't want there to be a separation, which indicates she feels there is a separation. Once again, the further you get into a relationship, the more you feel that. I texted them, and they haven't texted me back. In 14 minutes. Is something wrong? Is it over? Insecurities, fears and insecurities, not just personal about ourselves, but also in relation to each other. This is real stuff that, uh, that arises. But I want you to also, and so, and, and so here's part of the point of that. I think that it's helpful that Scripture acknowledges. Nothing's wrong with you necessarily, and nothing's wrong with your relationship necessarily, if you have those fears and insecurities. There's nothing wrong necessarily, Okay. Um, but here's, here's the other piece that I think is helpful. This isn't just an acknowledgement of, hey, you're going to have fears and insecurities. But it also is a statement of, hey, there's potential for resolving those insecurities within a healthy, godly, romantic relationship. By the time you get to chapter 2, verse 7, you know, at the beginning of it, she's like, oh, man, I'm, you know, don't look upon me, and I don't know, and I'm just a rose of Sharon, and where are you? And then chapter 2, verse 7, what is she saying to her friends? Hold me back, girls. Don't awaken love until it pleases. You know, she's all in. Like, and, and that's pretty quick. Most, most uh, insecurities don't get resolved in a chapter. But you get my point, right? This is telling us a story of how actually if romantic love is conducted in the appropriate and in a constructive manner, it can bring resolution to those fears and insecurities that arise within relationships. We all have challenges and baggage as we pursue and enter into relationships. Uh, and worldly approaches to romance only exacerbate those. And you know that. That whenever you're trying to be as sexually alluring as possible, or you're trying to be as uh, uh, marketable as possible financially, or to be as cool or as funny or whatever stuff that the world may say, this is what it means to pursue a romantic relationship, those things only get worse and worse. And eventually it brings about fractures in the relationship. But whenever you do it in a godly manner, it can bring about good things. Notice in chapter 1, verse 8, he offers her welcome while she feels distant from him. He says, here's exactly where I am. Just follow the tracks of the field. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, she says, oh, I'm a Rose of Sharon. I'm a Lily of the Valleys. I'm not as attractive as, as is socially the standard or norm. He says, hey, you're as beautiful as a horse to me. Right? I mean, he, he confirms that. He affirms her worth and value. He fixes all that. She, the, the whole bit about, you know, the myrrh and the, the uh, sachet of, of myrrh and all that kind of stuff, there's comfort and refreshment that comes for her. There's security. Our, the, the beams of our house, this relationship is like cedar, like pine. This is firm. This is strong. This is something that's going to last. Pursuing romantic love will absolutely expose fears and insecurities. But it also can bring about resolution to those insecurities if it's done in a godly manner. Which brings us to the, to the next idea that I think is really important that we learn here in Act 1 of our, our story today, of these two people in pursuit of marriage. Romantic relationships are only as good as the people who are in them. Amen. Romantic relationships are only as good as the people who are in them. By the way, this is overlap not just for pre-marriage, but also within marriage itself. Romantic relationships are only as good as the people who are in them. Uh, notice what we learn about these two people. A admittedly, we learn a lot more about him than we do about her. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier that Song of Songs, is, she's the main character. This is a book ostensibly for a woman. 
Much like the book of Proverbs is for a young man. You read it and it's, hey, my son, my son, my son, that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean women can't get anything out of the book of Proverbs. It doesn't mean men can't get anything out of the Song of Songs. But it's just the direction that's focused, right? So we learn a lot more about him because she's telling us things about him. She's making observations, not as much for him toward her. But we do learn some things from what we've read. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 tell us that she's humble. And not in the kind of just self-deprecating, I'm terrible kind of way. But she says, I am lovely. But she also acknowledges that maybe she's not the prettiest girl by most people's standards. She's humble, lowly of mind uh, to a degree. We also learn from chapter 1, verse 6 that she's others-oriented, particularly family-oriented. She could have said to her brothers, she said, my brothers were angry with me. I don't mean that they were actually being mean to her. She's just saying they were neglectful of her. In that way, it was like anger. Um, but she says of her brothers, they made me work. Well, you know, she could have left. She said, said deuces, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. I'm not working this field. Y'all get out there. I'm not going to do this. But she's committed to her family. She's committed to the good of her family, even at personal cost. So something else we learn about her is that she's unselfish. She's self-giving. She's somebody who's willing to sacrifice. She says there, I've been taking care of my family's garden or the garden they were working in. I don't know that it was actually theirs, but whatever. She was working with her family in this vineyard. Uh, excuse me, I said garden, but I meant vineyard. But then she says, my own vineyard, I have not tended to. I have not kept. I haven't made myself as desirable as maybe other girls might make themselves desirable. Um, she's giving of herself. She's not someone who's looking to take for herself. And by the way, she's hardworking. All this stuff is in the context of her being out there working. There's a lot of parallels here to Proverbs 31, which is written to a young man as he's out there looking for the kind of girl that he should uh, want to be with. And his mother in Proverbs 31 says, here's the kind of woman you should be looking for. Sure sounds a lot like this woman right here in Song of Songs. Sounds a lot like Ruth in the book of Ruth. It was, we see a live action story of this. We see good character in this woman is my point, right? We see that she's a good person. We know that she's pretty, I guess, but we don't know much about her being pretty at this point because we only know that he says your eyes look like birds. So that's as far as it goes, as far as the prettiness and that he thinks she's beautiful. The main feature at the beginning of the story is Look at who she is as a person. Look at her character. Men who are seeking, pursuing marriage should look for this, these kinds of things. This is an all-inclusive list. Uh, Proverbs 31 would be one. The book of Ruth would be one. Uh, all the kinds of things Scripture says about godly women, that would help us. But we need to look for this kind of woman. And if you're a woman saying, I'm pursuing marriage, what kind of woman do I need to be? These are the kinds of things that need to characterize women who will have flourishing, healthy, good, strong, romantic relationships. What about the man? There's a lot more said about him. We learn he similarly is hardworking because when she says, where are you? You're far away. He doesn't say, oh, I'm partying in the palace. By the way, just a, a, I should have said this earlier. The man, mostly he's referred to as the beloved. One time, he's, two times, excuse me, he's referred to as Solomon, right? Um, it's interesting, by the way, she's referred to as the Shulamite. And Shulam is the female version of the name Solomon. So probably this is not a true story, but this is an idealized, uh, imagined, romantic story, right? These two people, and I guess I'll just, uh, yeah, anyway, I won't say any more about that. So that's, that's what we got with these people. But instead of saying, oh, I'm at the palace having a good time. Come on, anytime you want, come on through. Where does he say he is? Chapter 1, verse 8. He's hardworking. He's out there shepherding. He's out there taking care of the animals in the fields. And as a shepherd in particular, we learn that he's somebody who's a, a provider, someone who's a caregiver, someone who's a protector. She observes that in chapter 2, verse 3 about him. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. He provides her shade shadow, which is a big deal when you live out in the ancient Near East where the sun is beating down on you all the time. To have a tree that gives you shade of protection, that's important. That's good. That's the kind of man that she has and that she's looking for. Not only that, chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that he's somebody who's fruitful and productive. Again, sometimes people sexualize this and it may have some sexual connotations to it, but I don't think that's happening yet. Their sexual relationship begins starting in chapter 4 and then you do see some explicit references to their sexual uh, desire for each other relationship. I don't think this is a sexual connotation, but the idea is he's a productive man. He's somebody who's actually doing things. He's not a bum. He's not just sitting back. He's fruitful. He's productive in his life. And he's strong and stable like a tree. Not only is he strong and stable, but he is a source of strength and stability for her. I love that line in verse 4. 
His banner over me is love. And I wish I could remember which song it is, but there's a hymn actually that uses this to talk about Christ. Many lines and many hymns use references from Song of Songs. Sometimes not accurately, sometimes better, as we already acknowledged. But here's, here's the, the point. is A banner was used uh, in war. Whenever you're out there fighting, and of course everybody kind of looks the same, we all got the same gear, it's not like everybody's wearing jerseys like a, like a sports team, okay? So it's hard to find your guys. And so when it's time to rally the troops, to get ready to go out to battle again, to, to mount another assault, you lift up the banner. And you rally to that banner so that you can gather yourselves and then go out and battle again. What does she say? What's her rallying point? What's the place where she finds strength to go forward in her life, to fight her battles? His love is her source of strength. That's her rallying point. That's the banner that she turns to uh, to find this help. And for all these reasons, he's unique. She says, like an apple tree among all the other trees. He ain't like everybody else, you know? He's somebody special. Now, do you think there were other girls in Palestine who had similar kinds of men who said the same kinds of things? I should say so. But there was something, maybe some indescribable qualities in this relationship where she desired him and he desired her. And they have this special bond in their relationship. Uh, he's sweet and pleasant. Uh, he's like fruit to the taste. And, uh, and not only that, he's just necessarily his kisses taste like apples or something. He's got apple gum or whatever. But the point is, this relationship is sweet and pleasant to the taste to me. And, and not only that, he bring, he's inviting. He's gracious. He brings me into the banquet hall. He is giving. He's not sitting back waiting for her to give. Men, could somebody describe us like this? Are we living like this? And whether you're in pursuit of marriage or you're in marriage, are you embodying this kind of character, this kind of um, attitude, this kind of person? This is what we're going for. We read this opening act and we say, man, I don't think I've ever heard people talk like this. And I don't just mean in the weird, gushy, uh, uh, romantic, uh, you know, poetic ways. But I mean just this kind of adoration and companionship. And maybe a lot of relationships we look around, I don't really see this very often. You know what the problem is? Most people's relationships are filled with people that aren't, well, they're not that good because the people aren't that good. And the thing that makes romantic relationships good is when the people within them are good and godly. You get what I'm saying? The reason why these two have such a good relationship, it's not like they found the magical chemistry and they go on the right dates and all this kind of stuff. No, it's their character that really starts this whole thing. So here's the big takeaway for me from this section right here and this piece of wisdom in Scripture. Don't look for the right person. Don't look for the right person. Look for a good person. You get what I'm saying? And here's what I mean. Some people's right person is they need to make this much money. They need to look like this. They need to have this kind of sense of humor. They need to uh, have this kind of lifestyle and all this kind of stuff and check, 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 check. Boom. That's my person. That's the right person for me. Of course, there's the whole soulmate notion that that one is also not, not really something we want to uh, get, get in our mentality. That doesn't work. Because eventually the person's not as attractive as they were. Or you find someone else who's more attractive than that person. Or eventually they lose all their money. Or they whatever. Like all the things that are on that list of the right person, it doesn't work out. right? Uh, by the way, I'm going to say some things in a second. I'm not saying you need to just go out and find somebody that you're like, I find this person repulsive, but they're a good person, so I should marry them. I'm not saying that, okay? Like she did say he's unique among the trees. That's important too. But my point is... That too many of us have this, this really dumb list of stuff that's the right person. And it's not stuff that actually is going to make a difference or make for a good relationship. Don't look for the right person. Look for a good person. Uh, all these other things aren't irrelevant that I'm talking about, but they shouldn't be the substance of our relationship. All right, I want to I make uh, one more observation uh, here before we read the next act, uh, which is we'll spend a little less time on. Uh, but chapter 2, verse 7. Our third piece of wisdom that we derive from this story. So number one. Pursuing romantic relationships absolutely will expose fears and insecurities, and it can bring about resolution for them. Piece of wisdom number two as we think about pursuing romantic uh, love is that romantic relationships are only as good as the people, the character of the people who are in them. The third piece of wisdom is that there is a time for love, and there is time that is not for love. There is time for love, and there is a time that is not for love. Chapter 2, verse 7. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's not time, she says. And listen to how this uh, gets it's kind of teased out in the next section. Chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, 
looking through the lattice. I don't think it's a peeping Tom situation, by the way, here. This is, this is somebody, there's an eagerness here, right? He, he wants to be with her. There's a separation. She talked about the veil. Here there's a wall. And so he, he wants to be near her, but he can't. He can only kind of catch these glimpses of her while she's still in this separated condition. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. He's saying, hey, you know, it hasn't been time. We've had this separation, but it is time now. Look, spring is sprung. Look, we got all the birds are singing and the flowers are bursting out. And this is all imagery, of course, for this time, for love that has come, that has arrived, that it's time now. But he says, you got to come to me. Verse 16, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. And then she says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. She saw him bounding over the mountain, and she says, hey, there's going to come a time when day is going to break. She knows. By the way, in the story, this is the night before their actual wedding. You see at the end of chapter 3, they're they're married. But here on the eve of their wedding, it's not really quite time for their love and all the dimensions of it to come together. But she says, hey, day is going to break soon. Return to me. Come back like that gazelle, like that deer leaping and bounding over the mountains. Come to me when it is time. Notice how uh, this not being time for love uh, plays out as she dreams. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. How do you seek something at night? It's in your dream. So this is a dream sequence we have here in chapter 3. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen whom my soul loves? She asked them. So in this dream sequence, which I think is all a dream, maybe she wakes up from a nightmare and goes out looking for him, but I don't think so. She knows he's got to come. So she's dreaming here and she's going about the streets. Where is he? Where is he? She's looking for him. She's grabbing people. Have you seen the one whom my soul loves? They're like, who is that? I don't know. And she's going about. And then it says, scarcely had I passed him. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceive me. We might think that's kind of strange, but her point is, I'm going to bring him to the place that's most secure, most uh, a place of, of companionship and love and security to me. I'm going to bring him there. There is going to be a time for love where we're going to come together. Verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You see, this section is bookended with this statement that that is our our third piece of wisdom for thinking about the pursuit of uh, marriage and romantic love. That there's a time for love and there's time that is not for love. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, There's the wall where he can't get to her. There's a separation. And he says to her, hey, come away with me. He knows it's not time yet, but I want you to come. I want you to come be with me. I want us to be together. I want that time to actually come where we can share our lives together. This dream sequence is exactly that, where she uh, desires this. All right, what does this mean for us? What does this piece of wisdom mean for us? There's a macro level uh, and a micro level. So let's talk macro first, big picture. Uh, Some of us are not in a position to be pursuing romantic relationships. For any number of reasons. Uh, maybe that time has passed. Maybe that time has not yet come. But I'm just not fit for this. I'm not in a position where I need to be pursuing this. When I was in high school in particular, uh, and in college, I remember a couple of my friends. They just always were dating somebody. Always. And you know why they were, and I say somebody, I should say somebody's. Because it was a, like a, a rotation all the time. And you guys know why. They weren't ready to be in any kind of real relationship. So there's kind of a nine-week, 12-week timer. And when that timer ran out, break up and on to another relationship because it really wasn't the time in their life to be doing that. They didn't have the kind of character that was ready for it. They didn't have the kind of wisdom or perspective. They weren't ready for it. There was, it was not time for love for them. You get what I'm saying? Right. 
Um, but there's also a micro level for this because you may get to a point where it is time for love. It is time to explore those kinds of relationships and enter into romantic pursuits. But even within romantic pursuits, there are elements of romantic love that it's not time for. In other words, when you're dating somebody, frankly, whenever you're on the very verge of marrying somebody, there's some activities that don't belong to you yet. Here you see these two people, they're wildly in love with each other. They're deeply devoted. It's on the eve of their very wedding, and there's still some barriers between them. This is important, and it's easy to kind of let those guards down, and some of us let them down or tear them down really quickly, and we really engage in um, uh, sensual, sexual ways with people that we don't have the right to. It's not time for that. You need to understand there's a time for certain aspects of love. And there is time for that. We're not doing it today. But it happens in the book of Song of Solomon where it really comes out, this full bloom of their sexual love. And it's celebrated and, uh, and giving a lot of ink in this book is about that. So that's a big deal. But there's time that's not for that. And we need to respect those boundaries and appreciate that. The reason why, of course, is so that we don't awaken love until it pleases, so that when it is time, it can be enjoyed properly. All this agricultural image is very helpful for us. What if in February you take yourself some flowers and you dig up the ground and you plant those? And by the way, I'm sure somebody would be like, well, actually, there is a plant you plant in February. Okay, not those. I'm talking about the regular plants, okay? And you plant that sucker in February. What's going to happen? It's just going to rot out and die. And if you try to awaken love before it pleases, it's going to rot out and die. And you might miss out on something really good in your life because it really wasn't time for that. You get what I'm saying? Now, there's another takeaway from this section here, this uh, second act that we've been reading. Because you may say, well, how do I figure that out? Because that's a little hard. Okay? So there's time for love and there's time that's not for love. And there's certain aspects of romantic love that I should and shouldn't be protected. How do I even figure that out and navigate that? And most of us just try to dive in and try to swim. And then we end up kind of drowning in this uh, attempt at love. How do I know? Well, there's something that we're learning here again with both of these references. Um, who is she speaking to? She's not talking to herself. And actually, she's not even praying, although I'm pro-prayer, obviously. But she's not even praying. And she's not talking to him about when love should be awakened or not. She talks to those daughters of Jerusalem, these people who throughout the book of Song of Songs are presented as these good influences. So what do we learn? What's the piece of wisdom we learned here for pursuing romantic relationships? Wise outside influences are crucial for healthy romantic relationships. Wise outside influences are crucial for romantic relationships. We've already seen it. I mean, right off the top, she sings her song and her beloved isn't there, but her girls are there. And they say, hey, we're celebrating this with you. In verse 11, whenever she's going through all her insecurities, they say things like, hey, we're going to support you. We're going to help you. You don't have to have those. You don't have to be weighed down with those insecurities. And then here, she believes that these women, she knows these friends of hers well enough that she can say to them, girls, hold me back. Don't let me do something stupid. Don't let me jump into this thing when I'm not ready or in ways that I'm not ready. She has good outside influence, people who are wise, people who are strong, people who are going to tell you the stuff or do the things that you really don't want done in your uh, romantic pursuits. Uh, we need those kind of people. Um, so here's some mistakes we can make, though, about this. And, and by the way, that's how you figure out what, what kind of character I need to be working on so that I can have a good relationship. What kind of person do I need to be in? What, about, what do you guys think of this man or this woman? What do you all think? Is this a good person that I should be chasing after? And if all your friends, by the way, say no, then they'll be like, well, you guys just don't get him like I do. Y'all don't understand her like I understand her. Yeah, that's true. We understand her with our heads uh, on straight. And you are not. You're being a dum-dum right now because you're all in love. And so you need some outside influence to tell you the truth about this, right? All right, so here's some mistakes we can make about this. Number one, we don't seek counsel from outside influences. I'm not asking any questions. I'm just going for this thing. And look, he's all these things. She's all these things. I want him. She wants me, whatever. And we're just going for it. And we don't ever stop to ask anybody what, what they think what kind of advice they might give us about how to conduct our business or what they think about this relationship or whatever. You're going to mess yourself up if you do that. There's another problem, and that is we seek counsel, but from people that we know are going to tell us exactly what we want to hear or are in exactly the same situation as us. I know 95% of my earliest conversations about girls I was interested in, dating possibly, all that kind of stuff, was with the fellas who were just as stupid as I was about romantic relationships. 
about how to go about them, about what to do. They celebrated things with me, and I'm not mad at them, by the way. They celebrated things with me that shouldn't have been celebrated. They encouraged things that I wanted to do anyways that were not good and weren't right, and sometimes were sinful, actually. I wonder if I'd gone, and I can think of specific people that I had in my life that I could have gone and asked, I could have gone and talked to. And I think I knew it, but I think I didn't want to hear it. I think I didn't want to hear what some people were, te- were going to tell me. And so I didn't seek out their counsel. I only sought out counsel from my yes men. And I was their yes men as well at times, right? That's not going to help you. That's not going to help you build a strong romantic relationship. And you just end up destroying yourself. Here's the third mistake we can make. We can seek counsel until it contradicts what we want to do anyways. In other words, we say, oh, this person's so wise. And I talked to this person and they advise me. By the way, of course, this, this applies to all advice, but particularly with romantic pursuits, this happens. Oh, yeah, I trust this person. They're so wise, so mature, blah, blah, blah. And they're really helping me figure out this stuff on the dating thing. But then the second they tell you something that you don't want to hear, then you're like, I don't, I don't think they understand too much about that. Matter of fact, I don't think they have good relationships, you know. Oh, and by the way, can I add something? There's nothing said in this that says these women were themselves also pursuing marriage. Who knows? Maybe they were going to be celibate all their lives. Maybe they were already married. Maybe they were old women that were these, this girl's friends. Maybe they were young women, but just were wise and godly and mature, but they themselves were not. Here's my point. You don't need to look for somebody like, oh, they've already been in marriage, or they've already done all this stuff. That's good, by the way. Titus 2 says the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. That's good. But you need to look for wise, godly, mature, strong people who can advise you. Uh, not people who are like you, and uh, you don't want to find reasons to exclude certain people uh, just because, oh, I th- I'm going to figure out a reason why I don't have to listen to you. Wise counsel is crucial for strong and healthy romantic relationships. There's something else here that actually leads into the, the, last, uh, the last act at the end of chapter 3. Another piece of a wisdom that we gain here. And that is that real romantic love doesn't just happen on its own. It takes work. Real romantic love doesn't just happen on its own. It takes work. Now I know every movie and every book, not every book, but most of the books, but every movie and every song, you go from nothing to madly in love in an hour and a half or in a song, four minutes or less. And then boom, it's all great. And whenever we look around, if we see good relationships, it just looks so effortless because they're just they're just in sync with each other. The times, at least, where we do see these things. And man, they're just working, and it's just so great. And why is this one so hard for me? Why is this one so difficult? Why is this so arduous? Well, because you're not seeing the whole picture. This gives us a real picture. And it gives a picture of the work that these two people are putting into their romantic love. Um, <clears throat> start with him, for instance. He has to bound over mountains. Now, he's eager. He's jumping around like a gazelle or a deer or whatnot. But he's having to traverse mountains to get to her. And then, uh, by the way, we're not going to read all this, but in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, there's this elaborate description of the wedding processional as he comes for the wedding. This is how these uh, ancient Near Eastern weddings would be conducted, where he's the one who's going to come to where she is, and they have the wedding celebration. And as they come, he's got his soldiers with him, and he's got these beautiful uh, structures that are car- he's being carried on. It's this big, big to-do. There's a lot of effort put into that, a lot of work put into that. And then it's not just work from him. In the dream sequence in chapter 3, 1 through 5, she's seeking him all in the streets, grabbing people, whatever. She, she's working. She's seeking after him, even though she already has him. But here in this dream, she knows she has to go to find him. By the way, later in the book, even after they're married, they have to find each other again. We'll talk about that another time. Um, but then also look at how he's not the one, uh, neither one of them are the only one doing the work. He bounds over the mountains. But then did you notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 10? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Uh, the time has come. He just says the same thing in verse 13, the end of it. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He's not just coming to her and saying, all right, I've come. I've done all the work. Nor is she running out there to him. All right, I've come. I've done all the work. They both have to invest in this relationship or else it's not going to work. They both have to make effort if they want to have this uh, good and healthy romantic relationship. Uh, Notice actually, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say this. Uh, Another piece of the work. He uses all this agricultural imagery to talk about the nature of love. Fig trees, never mess with them myself, but from what I understand, fig trees, they don't just grow and, and be fruitful on their own. 
you got to tend those suckers. you got to make sure that they're, they're, they're productive and fruitful. All these other things, you've got to work the fields to make this stuff work. And he's saying, hey, it's time that we work for this relationship, that we strive for this. It's going to take effort. And even effort that uh, protects against dangers. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. I don't know what, if he has something specific in mind with the foxes, I kind of doubt it. I think this is supposed to be a general statement of, hey, there are vulnerabilities. There are dangers that could damage our romance. And, of course, there's all kinds of things to that. Other people uh, work, our, our work day to day, our own troubles and trials that we deal with internally. There's all kinds of things that could ruin this romantic pursuit. Catch those foxes. Guard against the things that could mess this thing up. That's going to take work. And I really, really want to drive this point home. Um, notice how the man invests himself fully. He bounds over the mountains, and yet he also calls on her agency to take responsibility in the relationship. And similarly, she allows him to take on his duties. She doesn't prep everything, make everything right. She gives him space to do what he needs to do. This is really important. I think this is an important idea in a couple of directions. One is, if I'm going to really have a good romantic relationship, i got to be willing to work at it. It's not just going to happen. And some of us think it's just supposed to happen, and so then, whenever it's not happening easily, just break up. It's over. Sometimes you need to break up. Remember, that's why those wise and godly counselors are important, is so they'll tell you when it's time to break up before you're married, of course. Um, But sometimes you just need to tough it out. Sometimes this is just one of the weird parts of being in a romantic relationship with another human being who's got problems just like you, and you got to put in the work to make it work. Uh, And that's important training Because in marriage, you definitely have to put in the work to make it work because you're not allowed to break up then. Jesus said so. So you got to figure out how to work it out. And you better learn to work stuff out before you get into marriage so that you'll be able to work things out within marriage as well. Um, But here's the other thing that I want to say. Don't drag someone into a relationship with you who's not willing to work at the relationship with you. You hear me? Don't drag someone into a relationship with you when they're not willing to do the work with you for that relationship. All right. This is really important because that can happen. On the flip side of that, don't settle into a relationship because like, well, I'm running out of time here or, well, I can't find anything better out here or, well, I just want to or whatever. And like you just settle into this relationship where the other person is not making any investment where they're not putting in the work, where they're not putting any effort, and you're doing everything. You get what I'm saying? Or, or you're not going to be willing to do anything, but I'll just go ahead and get married, and they seem to be willing to take care of everything, so I'll just let them kind of drag me along in this relationship. No, no, no. Real romantic love requires work. It doesn't just happen. And we've got to be willing to own that if we're going to have healthy, godly romances. All right. Y'all ready to be done? I'm ready to be done. Too much romance talk for one day. You know what I'm saying? This is weird. Last one, though. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. I told you, uh, you've got the processional where Solomon, the the husband, comes. But listen to what it says as uh, the narrator is speaking in this this section. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. What are you going to see when you look upon him? While you look at this man coming to be with his beloved. Look off King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the joy of his heart. I love that line at the end. On the day of the joy of his heart. What is the joy of his heart here? Maybe it's um, that he's, he's going to be married. You usually don't run up on someone before they get married and they're just really bummed out. That's usually not the vibe. Um, and so maybe that's the statement, that he's, he's just really happy about this, that this day has finally come. And I think that's probably true. But what's the reason why he's happy that this day has finally come? What's the day that he has such gladness and joy? It's because of the person that he's going to be with. In other words, I think the way we should read this is, this is the day of the joy of his heart. This is the day where he's going to be with her. God wants us to enjoy and find joy in romantic love. God wants us to enjoy and find joy in romantic love. God could have made Eve any way he wanted to, right? Could have made her look any way he wanted to, could have formed her any way he wanted to. But whenever he formed Eve, do you remember what happened? Adam awakens from his surgical procedure, and there God brings the woman to Adam. And what does Adam do? He bursts out in song. 
And actually, um, it's that song. At last, this one is bone of my bones, right? He goes something like that. I don't know. He's joyous in this moment. You get what I'm saying? He's joyous. And he enjoys this relationship. And so much of the wisdom literature, when it talks about marital relationships, it says, enjoy the wife of your youth. Yes, it takes work. And yes, good character is necessary for this to be a good relationship. And yet, all the, all, and yet you're going to have fears and insecurities you're going to battle with, and you're going to have to help each other with, and all the kinds of things we've talked about. But the whole point of this is for our joy Amen. and for our enjoyment. You get what I'm saying? And sometimes we can talk about marriage in such a way that it's just like, oh, it's, it's just good for you. We were actually talking to my recently who's about to get married, and, and she was noting that at her, at her shower, uh, you know, the, the uh, premarital shower, whatever you call that, wedding shower, um, all these people were coming, and they were like, good luck. We'll be praying for you. I hope it goes well. It's like, hey, just because you have a bad marriage, don't put that on everybody else, okay? But a lot of people, and, and, and by the way, those of us who haven't married, we need to get ourselves straightened up in our own marriages and provide a biblical portrayal of the attitude toward this. It's not supposed to be something. And it is arduous sometimes. It is, there is struggle. We're going to see that in this story later. But at this stage, they enter into it with joy and for enjoyment. That's what God did this for. That's why God put this thing together this way. It's so that it would be a source of joy down to the depths of my heart. She talks about the one that her soul loves. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. And, and maybe part of the reason why God's done this, like so many things in marriage, is so that we can have a, a, a little shadowy whisper of the joy and the enjoyment we have and will have even more fully whenever we come to be with the Lord. And so, yeah, I, I think I can say this. All caveats with the other things that I've said about do it with wisdom, find a good person, all this kind of stuff. But I don't think we're supposed to read this and think it's not important that you're attracted to the person. No, actually, I think that's pretty important. You know, the other stuff's more important. OK, don't get me wrong. Don't just find something who you think is beautiful or handsome to the max and then go with that if they're a bad person. But it's good and important to find someone that you're drawn to, that you can enjoy life with, that you do have shared interests and all that kind of stuff, because that's actually that's what God wants this thing to be like. And those kinds of things shift and morph, especially as you become more and more one flesh, as you move into actually being married. Uh, everything becomes one in your life and in your heart. And that's a battle, and that's a struggle at times, but it's also a joy for the ones who pursue marriage in the ways that God has designed it. Um, so that not only we'll enjoy our marriages on this earth, but we'll be more be better prepared and have a greater anticipation for the marriage we'll have in heaven with our Lord.